Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here in the house of God to uh, worship. It's good. I mean, just look around. Look at everyone around you. We are here worshiping the living God. I mean, that is awesome. This is uh, such a privilege to uh, be here and to worship together. So I just, uh, I'm thankful to the Lord that we can be here and that we can focus on him. Uh, let's, uh, let's just uh, read from the word of God today. I'm going to open up to Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Just a short little passage. If you uh, didn't bring your Bibles, you can grab one of them, uh, the ones in the pew right in front of you. Or you can just listen, that's fine. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. <clears throat> and listen closely because this is God's word for us today. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Friends, this is God's word for us today. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this, your word, which you have shared with us. We are so grateful that we have the opportunity to learn and grow. We are so grateful that you draw us into deeper waters, greater faith, greater calling in our lives, that you uh, accept us right where we are, but then you work on us and you grow us to be more like you, more uh, holy and happy and filled with uh, the, the truth of life. So thankful that you uh, don't just uh, leave us to do this on our own. You are with us every step of the way. You promise that you will be with us even to the end of the age. And Jesus, we are thankful for the life that you've given us, the salvation, the hope, the grace. And we give ourselves back to you now. We ask that you would speak through your word in your name. Amen. Well, I was uh, listening to the radio three days ago on Thursday the 28th and um, was kind of amazed to realize that it was the 30th anniversary of um, the Challenger shuttle, um, space shuttle, um, blowing up uh, 73 seconds after launch. Um, the, one of the rocket boosters, the O-ring on the rocket booster failed. It was too cold that day. And the fuel was able to connect with the fire that was on the outside. And the end result was that that booster blew and the space shuttle blew and seven astronauts lost their lives, including Krista McAuliffe, who was a New Hampshire school teacher. She was going to be the first teacher in space. And really, it was a shocking moment. Um, President Reagan was going to speak that night and talk about the uh, amazing glories of the shuttle program. And I think most Americans, myself included, were just used to the idea that, hey, rocket ships go up and they come back down. We, some of the early tragedies of the 60s with uh, rockets were kind of forgotten and it had almost become routine. And yet here in this moment of tragedy, this shuttle blows up. 
I remember hearing about that, being in the student center at college, downstairs, walking through this area, and somebody coming up to me and saying, hey, did you just hear the space shuttle blew up? And I what? It's just uh, kind of a sobering memory for me as I listened to this interview. The guy being interviewed was this engineer named Bob Ebling. And he and four other engineers had the night before been desperately warning NASA that it was too cold to launch. The, the deal was is that there were these little rubber O-rings that were in these rocket boosters, and uh, if it was too cold, the engineers had figured that the O-rings would constrict too much and they would allow a pass-through of, uh, pass of the fluid um, and, uh, and that there was a high chance of explosion. Well, they argued before the NASA officials, it was a, um, it was a, I think it was a conference call, and they argued and argued and argued, and the NASA officials would not listen and said, nope, we're, we're scheduled to go tomorrow, and we're going to go. This is what uh, Bob Ebling said. This, uh, he's probably in his 80s now, um, and just kind of a, a little bit more of a feeble voice. It was really, uh, it just struck me what he said. He said, God made a mistake. He shouldn't have picked me for that job. Why me? He picked a loser. And when, when I heard those words, I was like, oh, it just cut me to the heart. This guy believed that because he and his other four engineers were unable to convince the NASA officials that they should not launch the next day, that he was, in a sense, responsible for that launch, that he was a loser, that God had chosen him and he was inadequate to the task. And the word bondage just came into my mind. For 30 years, this guy has been living under the bondage that this disaster and those lives were, were his fault. And I think that you would probably agree with me, it wasn't his fault. That's a lie, isn't it? I mean, he did his best to convince them, but they would not listen. I, I, I think about Ezekiel in chapter 33 of Ezekiel, where God says to him, Ezekiel, you're a watchman on the tower, and your job is to warn the people of the coming attack. Now, if they refuse to listen... If they refuse to close the gates, if they refuse to prepare themselves for the attack, it's not on your head, Ezekiel. It's not because you warned them. But if you fail to warn them, if you know what's coming and you fail to tell them what's coming, then when the attack comes, it is on your head. I think about Bob Ebling and I think this guy warned them. And when he did that, he had done his job. He did it the best he possibly could. But after that, it was no longer on his head. Unfortunately, though, he, it's like he didn't understand that. It's like he didn't grasp that boundary between what was his responsibility and what was their responsibility. And, you know, God, you made a mistake. You chose the wrong guy for the task. He was not a loser. He was a guy who brought a message that was not received. His faithfulness in bringing that message and the failure of them 
to listen to it, it did not mean that he was a failure that day. John uh, 8.32, Jesus says these words, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Let me just say that again. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And let's just note what that says. It says that there really is truth. It says that there really is truth and that means there are also some things that are false. I mean, if we're both looking at the same vehicle and I'm saying that's a Ford F-150 and you're saying that's a Chevy, one of us is wrong. I mean, there is actually a tangible truth to this world. There are things that are true and things that are false. And Jesus says, the truth is something that you can know. It's possible for us to know it. We're not living in some sort of world where, you know, we're just sort of these pawns in some giant chess game and, and we don't have any control and the world's just going to happen to us. No, there's, there's actually truth and we're able to know it and we're able to actually be changed because of that. And what comes from knowing that truth is freedom. Just think of Bob. He could have been free these last 30 years, certainly would have appropriately uh, mourned the loss and felt it probably closer than us because he was closer to the situation, but he could have been free for the last 30 years instead of held in that bondage. Freedom comes from knowing the truth. And I want to suggest to you that that freedom is a part of the good life. The good life is a series that... uh, Pastor Kristen and I are preaching uh, these weeks here. We've talked about um, the, the spiritual disciplines that are, are in, that are available to Christians that bring us the good life. And we're using a lot of concepts uh, found in Richard Foster's book, The Celebration of Discipline, a great book, which I encourage you to uh, check out sometime if, you haven't, if you've never read that. We've looked at uh, meditation, at prayer, at fasting, and today... We're going to look at something which brings us truth, and that is the spiritual discipline of study. Now, I just said that word, study. And some of you may be like, oh, you're kidding me. I'm done with school. I never want to go back. I don't want to be a person who's a slave to the books anymore. But this is study of uh, not only uh, books or what we might say the 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 book of books, the Bible, but it's also a a general understanding of sort of uh, the study of the world around us. Food for your brain becomes food for your soul. The more you understand, the more you, you, you realize the truth of the world, the more you can connect with God and the more that that feeds your soul. Knowing the truth will set you free, and freedom is a part of the good life, and it's available to anyone who's willing to study. Listen again to those uh, verses I read to you at the very beginning. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about such things. The spiritual discipline of study is about thinking. 
It's about not just letting life pass us by and we just sort of give a little cursory nod to sort of the surface of what we've seen. It's about stopping and really going, wow, I got to think about that. There's something more there than just a flash of beauty or uh, something that I can just appreciate and say, oh, that's kind of neat. Okay, I got to get back to my to-do list here. It's a good thing to stop and think, to observe, to just contemplate. I think about uh, Roger Tory Peterson, uh, the um, famous um, artist who lived near here, who drew all those incredible birds. I mean, at a time before, I believe it was before photography, he, he drew these intricate uh, drawings of these birds and shared that with the rest of the world. I, I'm just amazed when I look at that and say, wow, he really drew these things. It's just, I'm so glad he stopped to observe because I go, wow, look at that bird. That's really cool. All right, I got, I got more things to do. But he looked at the feathers and the, the way it, it all comes together. And that's a becomes a blessing for all of us. So Richard Foster in his book, as he's talking about the spiritual discipline of study, he says there's kind of two elements to it. The first is the study of your surroundings, of life, of nature, of circumstances, of the world, to sort of be a good observer of the world around you. And that's kind of like what Roger Torrey Peterson did or others. And then there's the study of the Bible itself, the book of books. Now, this idea of studying doesn't mean that you have to be book smart. This is something that anyone who's willing to dig, it's available to you. Anyone at all who's willing to just stop and go, wow, I, I want to think about that. I want to take that in a little bit more. I, uh, I've told you in the past that in 1987, when I was 19 years old, I had the chance to take Bibles into China. And uh, I, went, I still can't believe my parents let me do this. I was 19 years old, and I flew to Hong Kong, and I lived in Hong Kong for two months, and I made 22 trips into China, bringing uh, over 10,000 pieces of Christian literature. Probably about 85% of those were Bibles. The rest was like Sunday school material, that kind of stuff. And bringing it into these central locations in China where then believers would come uh, from house churches where they were not allowed at, the, at that time to have any kind of Bible or or uh, Christian material at all, they would come and they would take these packages and they would take them back to their, their area and they would distribute them to one Bible per church. And these folks would open it up and they would read it and they would just, you know, um, uh, they would just take that in. And it, it was incredibly important to them. I, I want to tell you, uh, I want to tell you about my very first trip. My very first trip, I'd just gotten there and I, do you know who Owen Wilson is? You know, the actor, Owen Wilson? I, I made one trip with this guy who was just like Owen Wilson. I mean, it was like a dude experience all over the place. And, and his, this was his philosophy. We're going to load up our bags with as many Bibles as possible, and we're just going to make a run right at the border, and we're going to pray that the, the security bureau guards there are just going to not see it. And then we're just going to walk past the x-ray machines and, and it's going to be fine. We're going to get all these Bibles in. I, I didn't know. I'd never done this before. Somebody had told me it's okay as a Westerner, they'll just give you a, a receipt. They'll take them all away from you. And they'll, if you ever get caught and they'll give you a receipt and they'll, uh, you can bring that receipt back late, at a later time and, and get them all back. And, of course, the cool thing was we never got them all back because the guards would steal them 
they wanted to know what these books were, and they, wanted, they would read them themselves and pass them. It was kind of neat. But um, so I, I kind of, I didn't figure I was in real danger, but I actually wanted to get Bibles across the border. So, you know, we loaded up. We had these two huge duffel bags, and we're walking up, and we get right to the border, and the guy's like, look, you know, we're praying, man, we're praying. I'm like, yeah, I'm praying, believe me. And, and we get there, and, and the guards are like, open those bags. And we opened them. There's Bibles. They're like, we're taking those. You keep going. And I'm like, this didn't work. This is my first trip. I'm going to be here for two months. I, I, I was kind of, but, you know, in the back of my mind, I was like, isn't there, can't we use our brains? Isn't there some other way besides just like this blatant, like going straight through the front door kind of approach? Well, Owen Wilson, dude, he, he left. And the other missionaries who were there, they were not scared to say, hey, we trust God completely. We're praying like crazy, but we're also going to use our God-given brains to try to figure out how to do this better. And they figured out, I, can't, I won't explain this whole system to you, but they figured out a way for us to actually come up to the, this building and get these Bibles completely around the, the um, uh, x-ray machines and never have to actually send them through the x-ray machines. And because of that, I know it sounds complicated, it was, it took a lot of brain power to figure out how to do it. Because of that, over 10,000 pieces of literature went in. What, what my point is here is that the missionaries studied the situation. They thought about it. They looked at it and said, there's got to be more ways to do this. There's got to be a good way. It's okay to, to use our minds and to grow and to think and, and to become uh, better appraised of the situation and maybe figure out a new way to do this. John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism, he, uh, he once received this letter from somebody who was irate. They were mad at him. They thought that he was too much of like this intellectual uh, know-it-all kind of guy. And they wrote him this letter and they said, Mr. Wesley, God does not need your intelligence. And uh, John Wesley was never a guy to kind of pull a punch, you know. He, he sent him a letter right back. Sir, neither does God need your ignorance. <laughs> oh, man. I kind of wish I could write letters like that, but I, it just seems so, so huge. But, and it, but that's the truth. God is not somehow uh, more impressed with our righteousness if we happen to be ignorant versus if we happen to study. He's also not more impressed with our righteousness if we study. He's not impressed with us in general. He loves us, and he wants good for us, but we're not going to impress him in any way. It's, there's actually a, a tendency within, with, within some evangelical circles where it's almost like people say it's, it's more righteous to, to not study, to, to be um, a person who's not... Uh, polluted by all that education and learning. That, that education itself is something that people are suspicious of. But I want you to know that there's nothing more righteous about ignorance than there is uh, about knowledge itself. It's good. It's a really good thing to learn things well. I, when I go to the surgeon and have to have knee surgery or something, I look on the wall and that guy got his degree from a reputable institution, and I'm really glad about it. I, I, you know, if, if he didn't, and he performed surgery on me, that would be an unrighteous thing, don't you think? I mean, 
we would call him a quack. And, and it would be a bad thing to do that. It's, he's able to do that because he's studied, because he's grown. He's looked at the world and learned as much as he could. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think. Think about such things. Don't just do those things. Don't participate in those things. Don't just say, oh, that's a good thing that I should put into my life. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul says, I want you to think about them. I want you to soak that in. I want you to not just pass it by and go, well, that's a good, admirable thing. I, I want to participate in that or have that in my life. I want you to actually think about it and take it in into your life. Well, we can focus on the good things uh, in this world and think about them, and that's appropriate, and I'm glad that surgeons do it, and I'm glad that Roger Torrey Peterson did it, and I'm glad that missionaries in China figured out how to do that around the, the situation they faced. But when I think as well about the second part, about the fact that we get to study the Word of God, well, that, that gets pretty exciting. Because it's not just the general good that's out in the world, it's the specific good that God shares with us in his word that we can focus on. The Bible is a precious gift from God to us. I, uh, I got this video from a friend of mine uh, on Facebook last week, and as soon as I saw it, I said, I totally need that for my sermon. I want you to watch as this uh, people group in Papua New Guinea gets their Bibles for the very first time. They've never had the Bible in their language. I want you to watch this pastor pray and thank God for this moment when their tribe receives their first Bibles. chosen has come to pass. In the same way that Simeon prayed that he would see the Messiah before he died, I have been praying that I will see the Bible in my own language before I die. 
and this day has come to pass. Wow. So precious. He realizes, they realize how powerful it is to have the word of God in their language. What a privilege it is to study it. They're going to study the Bible. They already know Jesus. They already know the gospel. But they're looking forward to studying, to going more, to growing more, to finding out more that's there. They're going to think about it. They're going to read it and let it soak in. They want the truth that the Bible has for them. I, uh, I remember when I was a kid, I learned the story of Jonah and the whale. You know that story, right? Jonah, the prophet Jonah, is um, called by God to go to the evil city of Nineveh to tell the Ninevites that um, they should repent of their evil doing. And what does Jonah do? Jonah goes in the complete opposite direction. He gets on a boat and he heads out into the Mediterranean Sea and he's trying to go as far away as he can. And of course, then there's a great storm and he tells the sailors in the boat, it's my fault that this storm is happening. Throw me overboard and you'll be saved. They don't want to do it. They finally do it. They throw him overboard. He's swallowed by this massive fish. He's coughed up on land three days later after spending three days in the belly of the fish. He's in bad shape. And then God says, hey, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach. And Jonah goes, okay, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. And so he goes and he preaches and the Ninevites repent. And that was kind of what I thought the story was about. I read that story. I probably saw it in a children's book. I probably got taught it in Sunday school. Probably my parents told me a little bit about it. That's, that's what I thought Jonah was all about. And, and I was, you know... It's about obeying God the first time. You know, when God tells you to do something, just do it. Because if you try to run the opposite way, you might get, you know, swallowed by a fish. And, you know, I mean, this could be, could be really difficult. And, and God is going to, you know, kind of make it happen if he wants it to happen. And you better just kind of go along with it. And, um, and another thing about that story, I was always told that Jonah ran away because he was scared of the Ninevites because they were the enemies of Israel. And they were. They were terrible people. I mean, I'm serious. They killed and tortured people in horrendous ways that I can't even tell you here in this public setting. I mean, it was bad. And so I was always told Jonah ran away because uh, he was scared as well. Well, it wasn't until I got to theological school and I was taking a class with a professor there, and it was a class on some of these Old Testament books. And he goes, okay, we're going to read the book of Jonah, and we're going to look at it real closely. We're not just going to kind of look at it quickly. We're going to stop, and we're going to study, and we're going to observe, and we're going to carefully look at it. And we were reading through, and, and we had homework assignments and everything, and I came upon these verses, and they totally, they just hit me like right between the eyes. This is the end of chapter 3. The Ninevites have repented. Jonah's finally gone and preached to them, and they've repented. And it says here, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and, not, and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? 
That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And so now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. You know what Jonah just said there? He said, I ran away from this task, God, because I know what kind of a God you are. You're a God who's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Here's the deal, God. I knew that if I went to Nineveh and I preached for them to repent and they repented, then you might give those scumbags a second chance. And I don't want you to do that. See, he's saying, I didn't run away because I was scared. I mean, probably was a little scared. It was a pretty intimidating thing to have to go do. But he's saying, I ran away because I hate the Ninevites. And you're such a loving, gracious, second, third, fifth, hundredth, thousandth kind of chances kind of God that I knew that if they turned to the right, that you'd probably forget them and let them off the hook. And I hate him. And I'm angry that you just forgave them. Now, did the book of Jonah just take on a whole new level of depth as we looked at that? I mean, we talk, we talk about racism. That's racism. Different people hate them. We talk about love your enemies. Hey, Jonah doesn't love his enemies. He hates them. Talk about, is God a vengeful God? Is God the kind of God who just is looking forward to pounding people? No, because these people who had done incredible evil to his own people, he still was seeking that they would be saved. The Bible says, God desires that none should perish. That's the kind of God we serve. It was so cool. I was reading this book of Jonah and I thought it was almost like a kid's story. And I suddenly realized I'm finding out in very clear words, this is the kind of God I serve. And, and I'm also having to face the fact that inside me, I'm relating a lot to Jonah. You know, those enemies, those people that annoy me, those people that I want God to, come on, God, why don't you just like knock them down a little bit? A little revenge on those folks would feel really good. Wait a minute. I'm sounding a lot like Jonah here. When we read the Bible, we find out who God really is. We find out who we really are, and we find out how God treats us as human beings, and frankly, we find out how we treat God as human beings as well. God wants us to think. He wants us to look and and grow and study so that we'll find out more, so much more than we ever knew before. When we think, it saves us from false doctrine. I think about preachers who will get up and quote John 14, 13 and 14 to you and say, Jesus says, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. And they take that passage and they go and they just say, you can ask Jesus for anything. You can, you can ask him for, you know, that you're going to win the publisher's clearinghouse. You can ask him that you're going to in a brand new Mercedes Benz, you, you, can, you, can, you can just ask Jesus and he'll do it. 
And if he's not done it in your life yet, it's because you haven't asked enough yet. Or it's because you haven't been sincere enough yet. Or it's because your faith hasn't grown enough yet. And people hear stuff like that and they get taken in by that false doctrine. They, they haven't studied enough. They don't know that there's other places in the Bible where somebody who's incredibly righteous, like Job in the book of Job in the Old Testament, Job, whom God declares as a righteous person, subsequently goes through a whole huge amount of suffering and tragedy and difficult times. And if you don't know that, then you might take those verses of Jesus out of context. You might think, well, I, I can just you know, ask for anything and not understand that that has to be balanced with other things he says. I think about what, what Paul says in uh, 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Can you see that the health and wealth preachers who say, just ask God for all the money you want, have forgotten that the love of money can be the root of all kinds of evil? And by the way, even that verse has to be looked at carefully. It's not that money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money. It's that lust for it, that desire. I gotta have more or I won't be satisfied or I won't be secure. It's the love of money, not money itself. It's okay to have money as long as you use it well for the kingdom of God. God is willing to share money with you. He's already shared money with you. How are you using it? And it's not just the love of money is the root of all evil. No, 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 no. It's the root of all kinds of evil. In other words, there's some evil that has nothing to do with money. But there are a whole bunch of different kinds of evil that come back down to people just being plain old greedy. See, when we study, when we look, when we, when we think about it, we find that it, oh, the, the truth is always there. And sometimes it's subtle. It's like life. You know how life, we think, well, can't it just be kind of black and white? But it's not. It's like there's complexity there. There's, there's difficulties. There's things that, are, are, that challenge us because we're like, oh, yeah, there's yes, but no. But that's just life. And the Bible teaches us about the complexities, about money or about who God is or about how our Pension for revenge is not actually a good thing. When you study, and what you study over and over again, when you study it, it becomes part of you. It becomes something that you begin to take in. You begin to say, I'm starting to see the world more the way God sees it. By the way, if you have never picked up a Bible, if you're like, man, I, I, didn't, you know, I don't even know where to start, then I totally encourage you to pick up one of the little uh, upper room guides or daily bread, or sometimes you get something on your computer, like a little, uh, a thought you can get. That's a great way to start thinking about the truths of the Bible. Maybe, maybe uh, that's something that you need to do. Some people, by the way, uh, have studied themselves into a faith in God. They didn't have a faith, but they thought they'd study it and they find it. And also, I just want to challenge you, if you've been a Christian for a while, I don't want you to settle for the upper room and our daily bread and the daily um, encouragement that you get on your computer. I don't want you to settle for that because there's so much more. It goes so much deeper than just one little thought every day. There's, there's vast, I used to live across the street from this Bible professor I remember one day I came out and we're standing at the, the mailbox together. And I said, Professor Wolsey, you ever get um, sick of uh, studying the Bible? He's like, no way. Every time I read the Bible, 
I learned something new. I just remember thinking, if that's true for this guy, wow, how much more do I have to learn? Friends, I do not want you to settle because when you're reading our daily bread or that kind of thing, that is good sustenance, but in a sense, it's baby food. There's bologna sandwiches out there that you could participate in. And I eventually don't want you to settle for bologna sandwiches because I want you to know there's filet mignon out there. Don't be settling for bologna sandwiches or baby food when there's filet mignon out there. The Bible is rich. There's so much there. I want to encourage you, whether you're at the very first step, I've never even opened this book before, Pastor Bill. I don't even like to read. Or whether you've been opening this book for years and years, wherever you are, there is still filet mignon waiting for you. There's still amazing stuff for anybody who's willing to study. And friends, that is a powerful spiritual discipline. Knowing the truth will set you free. Many people have suffered terribly in their lives because of their ignorance of the truth, their lack of understanding about who God is. They think God's out to get them, that he's a vengeful God, or they think they have to earn their salvation or that they can never be forgiven of this particular sin or whatever. Just think of Bob Ebeling, 30 years of tormenting himself because he didn't know the truth. Friends, study to learn the truth. It will set you free. And that's the good life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the fact that you've given us the opportunity to learn more, whether it's learning more about our world around us and just being uh, faithful to take in good and admirable and holy and, and wonderful things, truths around us. Thank you for that. But also thank you for your word, which is filled with truth and filled with hope and, and all sorts of uh, encouragement to us. And I just pray that we will not fail to take that in and know that reality. I pray that you will encourage each person here, whether it's picking up their Bible for the first time or whether it's picking it up for the hundredth or thousandth time, that you will encourage them to just stop and, and look and see what you have to offer them. And Lord, I pray that you will encourage people to, to take seriously some of the um, opportunities we have here as small groups to to be together and to study together and to grow together, to study the word. Thank you, God. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have good for us and that we can know that. Grow us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.